0: From the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, civility in politics. Host Lee Anderson, president of the NAE, talks with Richard Mao, president emeritus of Fuller Theological Seminary. Today's conversation is brought to you by Zondervan a world-leading Bible publisher and provider of Christian communications, including a new book by NAE leaders Leith Anderson and Galen Carey titled, Faith in the Voting Booth, Practical Wisdom for Voting Well. More at Zondervan.com. And now, let's join in.
1: I'm Leith Anderson, president of NAE, here today with Dr. Richard Mao. Rich is A distinguished evangelical statesman, uh, serving as president of Fuller Theological Seminary for 20 years. Uh, Before that he was provost and senior vice president. He was professor of Christian philosophy and ethics at Fuller uh, before and during his presidency. And prior to Fuller, for 17 years, he was a professor of philosophy at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then, and this is especially interesting, upon retirement as Fuller's president, He returned to the classroom, and today holds the position of Professor of Faith and Public Life in the School of Theology. He's served on lots of editorial boards, including right now on Christianity Today's Books and Culture. He's authored 19 books, and of special interest is his book, Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World. He's also participated on lots of councils and boards serving as president of the Association of Theological Schools. And he and I have known each other for a long time, so I count him as a colleague and a friend. And I'm delighted to have you on today's conversation to discuss an important topic, and that is civility in politics.
2: I'm delighted to be with you, Lisa.
1: So let's uh, let's begin by making sure we agree on terms. So how do you define civility? What does it look like? What does it sound like?
2: Well, civility is, uh, you know, to put it in kind of very basic terms, it's it's just being a respectful person in public life. Uh, the word comes from the word "civitas" for city, and in the ancient Greek state, city-state, uh, civility was uh, learning how to get along after you've learned how to get along with kinfolk. Later on, with friends, uh, learning how to treat people in the public square from different nations, lifestyles, different races and religions with um, a genuine respect that took their fundamental shared humanness with you seriously.
1: Well, today in uh, the USA, it is a topic of frequent conversation because it sort of feels like American public life is unusually divided. Uh, political attack ads, people forward emails with inaccurate messages, there are all these social media posts that many of which are just intended to provoke incivility. So it's certainly not difficult to find it. And I mean, there are real policy changes and differences along the way. But there's a question that many of us are asking, is that the way we have to be? Does it really need to be so mean-spirited in today's political world?
2: And I don't really. I mean, as a Christian, I certainly wouldn't say it's the way we have to be. Uh, it's certainly not the way Christians have to be. But I think, uh, given our, our our created humanness, it's not the way we're made to be. We're made to uh, respect people, uh, to acknowledge that people with whom we disagree are created in God's image, and that they deserve uh, a, a civility from us. So I think it's a very important time to be saying this is not the way it's supposed to be
1: it it begs the question of whether or not things are different now than they've been in the past CNN has recently run a series about previous presidential elections and I've seen only a few of them but I'm kind of stunned to find about some of the uh, uncivil things that have been done in the past but what's different today in public discourse or is it just the same way it's always been, and we've just sort of uh, idealized the past and demonized the present?
2: Well, I, I think there, there, there are really two different answers to that. And, and the one is, uh, it, even if it's not brand new, uh, we're, we're we're surrounded by it much more. I mean, you know, in the old days, when I was being raised on television, you watched the, the Camel News Caravan for 15 minutes at night, and a little bit of Walter Cronkite or, or some but today, you know, it's 24/7. You can tune in anytime, and and the coverage that's given. I mean, the tremendous media coverage, and then furthermore, just the ways in which people interact with each other uh, on the on the web. I was a columnist for something called Beliefnet for a while, and uh, you know, I, I would write something, and somebody would in the comment section would say something uh, to disagree with me, and then somebody else would. Disagree with them, and there may be 143 comments, but only the first couple have anything to do with me. I mean, people are are shouting at each other, uh, as it were, you know, in the on the internet, and uh, I think we're just seeing it a lot more. But, but on the other hand, I, I do think that there's uh, that there's th- 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 there is something new, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that. Uh, uh, I, I, this sounds like a strange connection, but I, I think the family meal is very important. You know, we many of us learned our basic manners sitting at a table with people we're irritated with, and we had to stay there for 45 minutes, no matter what. And uh, these days, uh, people don't eat together; they don't dine together. There's uh, really a, uh, and and families break up, and and uh, the extended family isn't surrounding a kid. There are all kinds of ways in which the earlier reinforcers and shapers of uh, politeness and civility are, are no longer with us, and I think that's an issue that the that the church needs to address.
1: So, if I'm understanding what you're saying, it's the, the flames have always been there. It's just the winds are more intense, and there aren't the breaks. The, the The family dinner would be the, well, among other things, it would be the place where where we learn how to do it, and if we're not learning how to be civil, then we don't really know what to do. We don't know how to handle that.
2: That's right. You know, we're seeing so much fragmentation of family life that it doesn't surprise mm-hmm. us that when kids grow up in that environment, they, they promote a fragmentation in public
1: life. So civility and incivility, they've especially been highlighted in uh, in politics, but... But what about other areas of public discourse? So my home is in Minnesota. There's been a front page news story this past weekend about uh, incivility in children's sports and parents who are being excluded, that they cannot attend any of their children's sporting events because of the things that they shout. But one of the interesting comments that was in one of these articles said how it's becoming more difficult to get parents to coach children's teams because they don't want to put up with the abuse that they have to take from other parents. And and then I'm kind of embarrassed to say that there's incivility among evangelicals with one another. So you and I have been treated unchristianly by some of our fellow evangelicals. So why is this? And and I really want to know how do you handle that personally, because it comes your way.
2: Yeah, well, let me say, for, somebody asked me recently, you know, I've been involved in a lot of uh, interfaith dialogue with Muslims, Mormons, Jews, Hindus, and somebody asked me recently, uh, what's the most difficult inter-religious dialogue you've engaged in? And I said, actually, uh, most difficult is with, with other evangelicals. And and in many ways, that shouldn't surprise us, because when I'm arguing with a Jew about who Jesus is, uh, you know, I can get into the argument, but I know that ultimately, it's not up to me to uh, reach into that person's heart and and turn their their will toward the 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 Messiah of Israel, who you know we we know to be Jesus. Uh, That all I need to do is Put up the best case I can, and make sure that there's not misunderstanding, and hope that the Lord will use that. But inside the church, uh, we are we are all attempting to uh, honor, or you know, we at least claim to be wanting to honor the truth of God's word. And uh, and there's much more at stake because I feel more of an obligation to warn people against error, to see to it, you know that. Uh, that that the truth be be proclaimed, and so it's uh there's a lot at stake, and and some of the the, the buffer zones, some of the things that take the pressure off us when we're talking with our Jewish friends or with uh, Hindus, uh, a lot of that uh, isn't present. We we really want to battle for the truth, and I want to say uh, it's unbiblical. You know, at least you and I were both raised. Uh, The kind of evangelicalism where we heard over and over again that verse, 1 Peter 3, uh, always be ready to give to anyone who asks of you at any time a reason for the hope that lies within you. And what we heard hammered away at us was, you know, stand up for the truth. Be sure you are witnessing to the power of the gospel. Uh, Don't compromise. But seldom did they go on to the next part of it. But do so with gentleness and respect. The older translations do it with gentleness and reverence, and uh, to me, that's Christian civility. It's uh, having convictions, uh, deep convictions, and uh, learning how to articulate them, but always with a sense of gentleness and and reverence toward the other person. And in many ways, these days, with all the the bad stuff going on in the larger public arena, public arena, it's so important for us as Christians to uh, show other people that we know how to talk to each other without, uh, yeah, without destroying each other or or intending to destroy each other.
1: But it has to be personally difficult when an attack is personal or where someone within your own theological framework misrepresents you and and uses terminology that's inappropriate. I want to ask you if you want to retaliate in kind, but I'm not sure if that's an appropriate question or not. But but how how do you decide what to do and what to take on and what not to take on? Yeah,
2: well I, I think for me, uh, yeah, of course I want to retaliate in kind. I mean that's uh, that's my my you know New Jersey fighting <laughs> schoolyard fight kind of thing. But uh, I. I I think it's a spiritual, and, and I'm more and more convinced that the issues here are not just theological, but they're they're spiritual in nature. And that is, uh, it's so important for us to sit back and say, what's going on with me when I want to fight back, uh, when I want to retaliate? Am I just wanting to win an argument? Uh, am I wanting to honor the truth of God's word because God word God's word calls me to be gentle? And found as a teacher is that uh, if there's a generation of people who attack my views uh, the way I see things uh, and I, I may not I may not uh, be able to convince them uh, that I'm right and they're wrong but uh, many of them have kids who are struggling with that older generations views and it's so important for us to be presenting to them uh, a gentler and more respectful way of dealing with issues and uh, a more winsome presentation of the, the truth of God's Word uh, so that even though we can't convince the people we disagree with, uh, sometimes it's important for us to, to respond in ways that will have an impact on, on their kids, You know, the younger generation coming up. I'm finding that the younger generation of evangelicals is really looking for, mostly, I mean not all of them, but many of them are really looking for a a less mean-spirited uh, way of articulating uh, what we believe as followers of Jesus.
1: You bring that together in what you talk about as convicted civility. So. Where does that come from? What does that mean? Uh, is this something Jesus models? It's bringing together two things: conviction and civility. What What is yeah. that about?
2: Yeah, I mean, I got that. It's, it's, I think you know from Martin Marty, who there's a lot of people these days who have strong convictions aren't very civil, and a lot of people who are civil don't have very strong convictions. I I think that that verse in uh, in First Peter three really embodies it. Said, Always be ready. To give to anyone who asks of you a reason for the hope that lies within you. You know, uh, not only have those convictions, but be able to articulate them, but do so with gentleness and respect. And that's not just toleration; it goes deeper than toleration. It's a, a genuine, uh, yeah, a genuine respect for other people. And and fundamental to this is a learning posture. I mean, uh, you know, I've had. 16 years now of dialogues with Mormons, and I certainly haven't succeeded in convincing uh, Mormonism in general (laughs) that some of the things they uh, believe they shouldn't believe. But I've also learned from them that some of the things we've said by way of characterizing their beliefs haven't been fair, haven't been uh, truthful. And so one of the reasons why we enter into conversation with people uh, is to, to say, you know, maybe maybe we have something to learn at, at the very least about what they're really saying. And here, I think Psalm 139 is so important, you know, that whenever we're tempted with the psalmist to say, Lord, I hate your enemies with a perfect hatred, uh, the next thing we need to say is, uh, search me and know my thoughts and try me, test me, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And... Uh, uh, discussing things with people with whom we disagree can be a way of, of God's uh, enriching and expanding our own understanding of what, uh, what the Lord wants from us.
1: One of the challenges in politics today is a lack of discussion. Sometimes it's, it's simply shouting. You, you wrote your book, Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World, in 1992, so it's almost a quarter of a century ago. It was several years ago that uh, I read it. But it seems to me that I hear more about your book now than I have in any of the, the past years. But let, let's go back. 1992, gas was $1. five a gallon. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was 3300 There was relative peace in the Middle East. And Bill Clinton was running against George Bush. And you felt you needed to write a book about civility and incivility. What's different between now and then, and why did you do that then? Why was it? It seems like you ought to be writing the book now, but you wrote it a quarter century ago.
2: Yeah, I think in those days, uh, as I look back on it, I was I was motivated primarily by the ways in which people saw religion as a cause of some of the mean-spirited and violent stuff of the world. I mean, we had. Right around that time Bosnia Herzegovina or Christians and Muslims were killing each other uh, there was still you know killing going on between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland and and and, and it just looked like religion uh, kind of makes this stuff happen and uh, I was very taken with a book by Robert Bella and his associates back in the 80s uh, uh, sociologist who said y- you know Maybe the churches and the synagogues, I guess they would ask, add the mosques today, uh, ought to be places where we cultivate a, a, a kind of religious outlook that can have a positive impact, that can be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem. But, you know, when my book was published, uh, it was only a few weeks later that I got uh, two interviews uh, one from the Boston Globe, one from the New York Times. They didn't know about each other's. Uh, stories that they were doing but uh, they wanted to talk about incivility and uh, road rage in Southern California and uh, angry confrontations in in supermarket parking lots and uh, just mean-spirited mess between neighbors and I think they were beginning to sense that there was some new kind of hostility that was showing up in and, and just parking lots you know uh, and Toward the end of the 90's, then I, I started to uh, think about revising my book and then the publisher suggested that I do it. And uh, one of the big things then was uh, uh, people in Congress who were no longer seemed capable of talking to each other. I had a senior Republican member of Congress who said to me, "You know you should have waited to write that book. We need it right now in, in Washington. We can't talk to each other anymore." and the ways in which, uh, say, Kip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan used to disagree with each other in harsh terms in public life, and then they get together at lunch and work out a compromise. We're just not seeing that today, and so I did some revisions on my book. and There are a lot of new things with Muslims in America, big sexuality debates that uh, are tearing apart uh, even denominations right now. Uh, so it's so a new, a new, a new uh, agenda, I think, of instability.
1: When we follow the news reports in uh, 2016 elections, it seems that they often conflate uh, religion and politics, and that means that r- religious people, and particularly evangelicals, uh, somehow get painted with the brushstroke of political uh diversity and opposition that may or may not be fair. How how do we deal with this bringing together so much of religion and politics as if they are the same thing?
2: Yeah. Well, I think for many, many of us in the evangelical world uh, who, you know, when you and I were growing up evangelicals weren't political. I mean, you know, we can still remember the time when the, the more liberal Protestant types would say, you know, evangelicals should... Start getting involved. Well, now that we have gotten involved, I think they wish we'd go away. Uh, but the uh, in getting involved, people of strong religious convictions tend themselves to conflate uh, the two. To uh, think of uh, spiritual warfare and political warfare as, uh, if not the same thing, at least overlapping. You know, and, and there's that tendency. You know, G.K. Chesterton once said that creating false gods is a really bad thing, but so is creating false demons. And for some reason, people of strong religious conviction have a tendency toward demonization. Uh, It's it's, it's often very hard for people with strong convictions uh, that see those convictions as tied to very strong convictions in political life simply say, hey, let's talk about that. Let me understand you better. But instead, they go on the attack uh, because they see it as an instance of uh, spiritual warfare. I think that's very dangerous stuff.
1: Well, related to that, you wrote the uh, cover article for the Fall 2015 issue of Evangelicals, the magazine of the NAE. And the article was titled, Is Tolerance the Enemy of Religious Freedom? And in it, you talk about how American Christians have started to experience a kind of cultural marginalization, and and that's concerning. Uh, So, how do you think that impacts the way we interact with those with whom we don't agree, and what are the long-range consequences of being marginalized?
2: Yeah. Well, I think I mean, you know, I've learned a lot from you and others on this too. So, I'm not uh, I'm not speaking from simply my own my own perspective on this but I do think that we have we have been experiencing obviously that marginalization and with that for many many Christians uh, that's that's associated with a sense of deep loss you know they've taken away my country and I do not know where they have laid it and so there's fear and loss and of course what we need to get clearer about is that maybe what we think we had, we never really did have. I mean, it's uh, it's not like our African American evangelical friends are saying, "Boy, you know, they've taken our our culture away from us." Because in, in many ways, it was it was bad all all during that time that many of us as whites want to call the good old days. But um, I, I think the marginalization thing. Can work to our can work to our advantage if if we if we had good teaching about it. I mean, the fact is that uh, the apostles on the day of Pentecost were a very marginalized people, and yet the Spirit of God was able to work in marvelous ways through the proclamation of the gospel. And very often, uh, the church you know, we see this in China, we see it in uh, uh, Africa and Asia, Latin America. Very often, it's under the experiences of uh, of the oppression of religious groups, and, uh, and and a sense of marginalization that the gospel actually flourishes. And uh, I think it's important to hold out the hope for people that this might be a wonderful opportunity for us to uh, uh, really think about what the what the gospel is all about, and not rely on the cultural props. And uh, a civil religion uh, to to uh, give us a position of advantage in the culture, but that more and more we have to rely on the power of the gospel and the, the power of the Holy Spirit in, in uh, living out our lives in such a way that people will be drawn to the truth of, uh, of God's word.
1: Which sounds to me like a great sermon series for lots of pastors to preach. So it's saying in a world with incivility and political conflict, this is what the gospel says, this is, is the opportunity. What, what other advice can you give uh, to churches, to pastors and parishioners uh, on, on how to deal with this? And specifically, is, is it better to just keep quiet about politics uh, and civility and those two together, or is it better to bring it out and say, let's have an open discussion about what all this means?
2: Well. Um, and, and I'm not getting into you know, endorsing or criticizing a specific, any specific candidates here, but I had a pastor uh, recently, a young pastor, say to me, you know, I've never talked about politics from, from the pulpit, but with this guy who's running right now, I just think he's terrible, and I feel like I've got to take a stand. And uh, they're not going to like it, but I'm going to tell them what I think from the pulpit. And my response to that was... Uh, You know, if you haven't talked about it before, uh, this is the stupidest time to say anything about it because uh, uh, they're not going to hear you. I mean, if you want to feel good about having spoken the truth uh, in your own mind, well, fine. Uh, Do it as a kind of self therapy. But you're not really leading the people of God by saying, I've got to speak out. I think we need to start preaching on the issues as soon as the election is over. Uh, the worst time in the world to give a political sermon is during an election campaign if your goal is to instruct your people in righteousness. And uh, I think we've had a failure of you know, what we used to call catechesis, I mean, the, the teaching ministry of the church. Uh, and I, I think we, we need to strategize now about uh, once the shouting is, has calmed down. And uh, whatever I say isn't gonna be heard as endorsing this or that candidate or criticizing this or that candidate. Uh, How do we teach people about the role of government? How do we teach people about the need to uh, treat other viewpoints with gentleness and with respect? And if it's really a teaching ministry, it's gonna happen through, certainly through sermons, but through adult uh, Sunday school, you know, discussion groups, uh, it's got to happen through the kinds of things we pray about uh, in our pastoral prayers. Uh, we need to think of a broad and, and nuanced and complex teaching strategy, realizing that this particular campaign in the United States has been a wake-up call, that uh, we have a lot of work to do, uh, but once again, preaching a political sermon next week. In, uh, in, you know, in Ohio or in Southern California, uh, probably not going to be very
1: effective. So that lays out the challenge for after elections, but um, I, I think are what you're saying be absolutely welcome. Let, let me ask you a final question, which gets personal to me and, and to you and to others. It, it's kind of easy to recognize when other people are inappropriate, when incivility flips off their tongue. Um, but how do we personally check ourselves? How do we measure our, our own boundaries in what's appropriate and not?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it goes back to just the old notion of those quiet times that we're supposed to have, where I think we just need to to engage in self-examination, and say to say to the Lord. Uh, Lord, help me to see what's really motivating me. I have some big arguments going on right now with certain people about uh, what I see as important theological issues. Uh, And I I just, whether I succeed at it, I don't know. But I just find it very important to to spend uh, time alone uh, in the presence of God asking myself, what's motivating me here? Am I just... uh, do I just want to defeat that person? Do I just want to make that person look bad? Uh, am I really trying to provide a kind of leadership that, uh, that builds up the body of Christ? Or am I just more of the same of the kind of angry rhetoric or, or even seeming to be nice about it? Uh, what's going on really going on with me there? Am trying to be more civil than other people so that I can look better? You know, all of those kinds of questions, and I think that's the prayer of Psalm 139: Lord, search me and know me, and see if there's been any wicked way in me. And I don't see any alternative but to uh, to read the scriptures and to engage in self-examination, and maybe even to talk to some other people. Uh, try to create trusting conversations in which we we say. Uh, what do you think God wants me to teach me about the way I'm going about these things? You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, to put it kind of bluntly, uh, you can write a book on civility just because you want to look good, you know. And uh, am I really, am I really promoting the cause of civility and what I speak about and what I write? I think those are always important questions to ask.
1: Our guest on today's conversation has been Richard Mao, the President Emeritus of Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Rich.
0: The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.